Uh, I'm going to invite you to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2 today. We, last week we, we tailed off at the end of chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up at the, uh, the, the very end of chapter 2 as we dive into chapter 3. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 15, and we're going to talk about, I think, something, uh, something significant for our culture today in light of, of this passage. But I want to give you this thought as we dive into this section of Scripture. 1962, which may be a little bit before some of our time, Time, right, 1962, we're looking at 60 years ago here. Victor and Mildred Gortzel published a revealing study of 413 famous and exceptionally gifted people called Cradles of Eminence. Um, and you may ask, should I care about this? No, you should not remember any of that so far. But, but I do want you to know, they, they published a study, 413 famous and exceptional gifted people. They spent years attempting to understand what produced such greatness, what common thread might run through all these outstanding people's lives. And surprisingly, the most outstanding fact was the virtual, uh, virtually all of them 392 of the 413 had to overcome very difficult obstacles in order to become who they were. It was the, the reality of challenges that they faced that gave them the opportunity to, to excel. And, you know, when I, when I think in light of just that study, and here we are today as we dive into Scripture, oftentimes when I, I get opportunity to travel places sometimes and present about Utah ministry, other parts of the country, and I'll, I'll say to, to people, I, I think the strength of the Christian church moving forward, I think it's in Utah. And the reason I say that is because uh, the, the Christian church, uh, the mainstream Christian church is newer here. A lot of people that come to Christ are first generation believers. And, and to come to the Lord for a lot of people, there is some significant adversity uh, to putting their faith in, in Jesus. And when you're, when you're talking about first generation believers, uh, there's a lot of challenges people, I think, answer in their faith that if you live more in a region where Christianity is prominent, um, it, it becomes a part of the culture, right? And and so people kind of raise up generationally in that. But when you're first-generation believer and, and you might be the first Christian that comes to Christ within your family, uh, you, start, you ask uh, questions regarding why that faith should be essential and what's the foundation of it, why you should even trust in it. And, and it becomes a, a strengthening point. Those challenges become a strengthening point uh, to your faith, and it becomes very personal to you in that sense. And, and you are, are very well equipped in being able to defend in a loving way, why you believe what you believe. And when you look in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I don't know if I said 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, the, Paul, Paul in this position, he's, he's finding his faith challenged in, in his pursuit of Jesus, as well as the believers at Corinth, and he's encouraging them how to, how to live confidently in Christ, how in the midst of the challenges of the Christian life can you be successful towards your goal in striving for Jesus, for his glory, to the benefit of others and the world around you? Life has hurdles, and, 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 and even in your faith, there, there are obstacles. And so how do you, how do you live and, and succeed over those hurdles in, in your faith in, in this world? And that's where Paul he comes to in this passage, and he presents it really in three ways. He talks about, he starts by talking about our position. 
in the Lord. And then he, t- he talks about our, the problem that we face or the, specifically the problem he faces when we're related to us. And then I, I, I was tempted to alliterate all this to talk about our purpose, but I couldn't do it. So we're going to talk about our resolution, right? See as it starts in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Um, Paul, in this section of verses, he's really building off what verse 14 was. Verse 14 gave this, this big picture that now he, he's taking it in a, a, a further in another direction. I'm not going to go back and explain verse 14. Again, we did that last week, but, but he's, he's, he's building off of that, this idea of this aroma and this, this fragrance. And he asks this question at the end as he, as he relates us to being this aroma of Christ. He says, who is, who is sufficient for this? And this is a very important question uh, Paul is asking here. And I, I want it just to lock away in your memory for a minute. I'm not going to explain a whole lot of what it means to be sufficient, but, but to see that Paul is asking this question, who is who is qualified to do this, this very thing that I'm presenting to you as a, a, we conjure up this imagery of who you are in Jesus, this position you have in him as the aroma of Christ. He's, he's asking this question as he represents God to this world. Who is really qualified to represent God to this world? It's an incredible thought, but, but he, he builds this question off this thought, this, this, this idea of being an aroma and this fragrance for, for Christ, and it's this powerful connection uh, to your mind, the, the sense of smell. When you think about the sense of smell, some people say that, that one of the most direct connections to your mind comes through the sense of smell, and it's through the sense of smell that you can uh, conjure up uh, images of emotion and, and memory as you uh, as the sense of smell heightens that within your mind. And, and Paul's relating to that as he as he connects you to the idea of being an aroma and a fragrance of Christ. In fact, it kind of works like this. In verse verse fourteen, he talks about the the fragrance the fragrance that we carry in Jesus, and then he specifically refers to you as an aroma before he goes back to the word fragrance again. And the picture works like this, that there is this fragrance in Jesus, and, and, but the, the fragrance is very generic, right? It's just, it's just like another way of saying, what's that smell, right? What's that fragrance? And then he gets more specific in, in describing it as an aroma, which carries this thought of being sweet. There's this beautiful, sweet aroma before he goes back to the thought of this generic fragrance again. And Paul is using this imagery to connect the Corinthians to maybe this thought. He's saying to them, what, what kind of smell is Jesus to you? When you think about Christ, is it just this, this fragrance? Or is it, is it more than that? Is there an aroma to Jesus Smell has a powerful influence in the mind. Yeah, I think I've I've learned this multiple ways. Just living life, uh, I remember when uh, Sace now when she first became uh, pregnant with our f- first kid, and 
And we get to that place where it's time to pick something to eat. And of course, being pregnant and not always having the strongest of stomachs, she didn't want to go to her places. And so she would leave it up to me to decide. And of course, I'm going to pick my favorite restaurants. And so I do. And then we go to eat at my my favorite restaurants. And and then while we're there, all of a sudden she gets ill from eating at our favorite restaurants. And I I learned something there about pregnancy sick, that once you eat something being pregnant sick at at a restaurant that your husband might call favorite, you can never go there again because your emotions of smell have now overpowered that. And so it's permanently banned. And so I'm finding ourselves in in her first pregnancy, all of my favorite restaurants just getting knocked. It didn't take long before I realized when she says, pick your favorite restaurants, I'm not doing that. I'm picking yours because I I don't want to ruin mine anymore, right? So so, so there's this this way that that smell has this this power over over the mind, or or, or maybe even in your life, you, you might be able to walk into a room and, and then all of a sudden this, this smell uh, just captivates you and it takes you back to a place where, where maybe it's someone's cooking just reminds you of, of your, your mama's cooking when you were little, right? And you just instantly you're, you're transported back to that time. There's this connection with that food and what it was as a child growing up in that, that home. And it just, it reminds you of, of home as, as a kid and you have that, that strong connection there. Or maybe, maybe it's a perfume that, that someone you love used to, to wear and all of a sudden you, you smell you smell that and it takes you back to that, that person, that presence, the way you felt before them. The sense of smell is powerful in its, its connection, good or bad. For some, the smell of Jesus, if I related it to that, is like being pregnant sick, right? But for others, as Paul says, it's this the sweet aroma that reminds us of our, our state of being spiritually hungry and, and then we find Jesus and it's incredible what he delivers into our life. Why does Paul bring this up? Well, he's saying in this passage, he's, he's not trying to force the unbelieving world to Jesus, but he's saying as he shares Jesus that for this church to to remember what they had in Christ because right now they're, they're being challenged in that. The, the church in, in Corinth, they've lost their identity or, or started to, to sort of dissipate in, in, in the beauty of, of the presence of what Christ means in their, their lives. And they're spiritually, I would say, homesick for Jesus and they don't even realize it. And Paul is connecting this to the idea of, of smell. It's like, man, homes, being homesick, it, it's an interesting, interesting thing. Do you know that it's, it's possible to purchase candles based on the region for which you've come from in life that, that gather together smells that are, are specific to the area that you live so that when you light that candle, it reminds you of home? so that you can have that connection to sort of alleviate that, that homesickness. And I think this is what Paul is saying to the believers. Look, there's this fragrance of, of Jesus that goes around, just this generic smell. And for some people, that aroma becomes about death because uh, they have this distaste of Jesus. But for others, for others, it's this, this smell of life. It's this place of being home it's to recognize what, what Jesus is for you and the, the life he brings for you. 
Now, I think even in my life, I've lived in Utah now for, for 17 years, and occasionally you'll get that little taste of being, being away from where you grew up of, of, of homesickness. And I find that when I've traveled back, uh, when I've traveled back to, to be around the, the people that I've loved and the place that I, I grew up, just to reattach to that, that my homesickness is not necessarily attached to a place. And I don't really experience that much, but, but it's not really attached to a place. And I think probably because this is what I discovered with homesickness, rather, rather what it's attached to is more of a, of a memory. It's attached to a specific people in a specific time and place uh, during a specific moment that was impactful in my life. Because what you have, find happen as you, as you go back to that is that people have changed and things have moved on and where people were in that moment, they're not there anymore. It's like, as you move across the country, when you go back, you expect people to sort of stay frozen in that time period, but they all, they all got older and different. But what Paul is saying is the sweetness of Jesus works like this. He never changes. He's the same God. And you remember what that's like. What is that, what is that aroma to Christ in you? It's so significant for, for the soul and, and, and what it needs and, and being able to uh, uh, attach to that moment. And, and Paul's just conjuring up this image for, for the Corinthians to just go back there because life has this way to kind of pull you from that and just beat you down and present you with obstacle after obstacle that you just lose sight of that. And all of a sudden, Paul's just saying, let's just savor the goodness of what Christ is and and then he starts to introduce us to the, to the reason why is because there is this, this problem that we're facing. In verse uh, 17, Paul starts with that problem. The answer to uh, blank number two in your notes is this. The problem is being pressured to detour. That there is a system that the world wants to present. And the system is to, to detour you to you and, and pressure you out of that position in Jesus. And he says in verse 17, then, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Um, he's actually going to present to us three different ways that, that people are deterring of the church in Corinth from Jesus. They're trying to rob their joy of what they have in Christ. And he says one in verse 17, and he says the second one in verse 1 and 2, and, the, and then the third argument in verse, verse 3. But here he starts, he's saying, look, you don't really, the, the motives of people they may be coming to you with God's word and trying to lure you into a different message through God's word, saying they're talking about a Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. And their intentions are not pure. And their, their motivations, they're, they're peddlers of God's word, but they've got, a, they've got a different motive than what Jesus is about. And he's saying, well, let's just, let's just appreciate the sincerity of what this is. And look, we're sincere in what we're doing. That's why here, here at Alpine Bible Church, like uh, our hearts, we, we want it to, the motivation behind what we do, we want it to be pure in Jesus. And we, we want to live as a church that, that desires to give itself away for the cause of Christ, for his glory, to the benefit of others. We don't want to be about a mega church. We're not here to bolster someone's identity, to, to, to make them become some sort of celebrity in Christ. I don't, who could care? We could care less about that. We just want the purity of Jesus and the aroma of Christ to be rich within our souls. To connect to that, to not deter from that, to say that Jesus is more than enough, and I am just content in Christ. And Paul is warning the church here in this moment, look, people are coming to you and they may even present it in a Jesus-esque way. 
But they've got an ulterior motive behind why they're doing what they're doing. But, but you need to pursue it with the sincerity of Christ. And he's saying, look, in our lives, we recognize this and we walk with this, that we're commissioned by God. That is sacred. And in the sight of God, we speak in Christ that we are accountable. There is nothing more important than the message of Jesus and, and, and what it renews within the soul and the purity of that message and keeping that message pure. That's what redeems lives. That's what brings the, the goodness of Christ into this world. And that's what we, we, we need to be about. And he goes into verse 1, then he further elaborates what's happening here. He says, are, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we, do we need a some do letters of recommendation to you or, or, or from you? See, Paul's coming back to this church and, and they're saying to Paul, um, they're trying to really discredit Paul in this church. And they're saying to Paul, well, Paul, look, we got other leaders coming now and, and what we need from you is a, a letter of recommendation to validate who you are. And Paul in this moment is saying, are you, are you really kidding me? Do you need me? Do you need me to go through that? You need me to present some kind of piece of paper to tell you who I am? Like I'm some, a letter of recommendation? Like do you want to come with some kind of diploma that says to you, uh, I'm something great? Like we, we know how those work in our culture. I mean, we know how it works in our culture. You can come, anybody can get a letter of recommendation of some friend that says they're something special. I mean, you can get a diploma and says that you're really smart at books, you know, studying and answering questions. But at the end of the day, is that really what gets it done? Is that really what it's about? You can find that you can hire someone simply based on a diploma and a letter of recommendation, and they got the emotional intelligence of a two-year-old. Is that really what's going to do it? It's what Paul is, is saying to the church. And what's been inter introduced into this church is this group of leaders that are charismatic and, and really from that, some armchair quarterbacks. I often say in charisma without character leads to an implosion. And we see it within, within our own culture. Our culture just flocks around people of charisma that have no character at all. Paul's saying, really, you're really attracted to these charismatic leaders that I've got to come back to you and validate who I am? And then with these charismatic leaders, these armchair quarterbacks that are just lobbing and hurling insults at Paul, not really doing anything for the gospel, but certainly tearing things down contrary to Christ. Paul then goes on and he says in, in, in verse 2, he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. He's saying, rather than just give you a, a meaningless piece of paper, church, how about we just stop for a minute and we, we look at what God's done. Just look at what God's done. I mean, it's been incredible to think in Corinth before this, there was nothing. And now you become the testimony of the presence of God working. You don't need people of charisma. You need people with character and commitment towards this cause of Christ with sincerity. That's what we need at the end of the day. 
Those will be the people that carry the mission of God forward. And, and Paul, when he describes this, he's saying, look, what God has done, you're our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. Paul's saying, look, we saw it. We saw what God did in your lives. We're not going to forget that. It's this pleasing aroma of, of, of Jesus. And, and not only did we see it, it it's known by everyone. It was, it was demonstrated in your life. This is much greater than just simply writing it down on a piece of paper. We get to experience the goodness of God collectively together. That's far more powerful than simply just writing it down. The experience of Jesus, you cannot deny what God has done and what he continues to do because lives continue to be transformed in him. And so in verse three, he says this, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. They're trying in these moments, Paul's really getting ultimately to, to what the whole argument is. They're trying to discredit Paul to ultimately introduce religious living. And that's the way our culture works even today, since the days of Paul and even before that. If you don't like what someone's saying, you can't discredit the truth of what they're saying, you malign the person. And as you malign the person, then that discredits them and gives you an opportunity to present something else. And this is exactly what they're doing to the Apostle Paul. First, they start to attack Paul to then challenge the message that Paul presented in order to bring about a, a religious statement or a religious way of living. That's what they introduced to the church. He's saying, the Spirit of God is what's giving you this, and it's not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of, of human heart. And they're, they're going back to the idea of Exodus 34, which we're going we're gonna to talk about more next week, but the, the, that's the portion of Scripture where God wrote the, the Ten Commandments on stone. And it's thinking out of all of the things that you can write down, I think the, probably the, the most powerful thing that's been written down is what God wrote down on stones. He's saying, you, you want to go back to religion of stones rather than what, what God has, has written on your heart? And, you know, in, in this moment, Paul could have spent all kinds of time defending himself. Right? He could have said, as he's being attacked and as they're, they're presenting this religion, he could have gotten this place now where he starts to, to defend himself. And he certainly had the position to do that. I mean, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, he says, he's the Hebrew of Hebrews. In verse, verse 5, he says that. And in verse 6, he says, as to the law, he was blameless or he lived it perfectly. If anyone under, understood what this religious living could have been about or should have been about, it, it was the, the apostle Paul. And when it comes to the idea of, of learning what's on tablet, I mean, Paul was the most learned individual of his day. He, if anyone was qualified, it was Paul, and he was probably overqualified for that type of living. And it's not to, to knock learning or to say it's, it's not important for us. I think uh, even God's word is important to, to us. Like uh, we, we should be in pursuit as believers as, uh, uh, in being lifelong learners, but, but Paul is making the argument here that that's not what sets you free. That's not what sets you free. And this is exactly why Paul doesn't take the bait in defending himself. 
Because he understands it's not about him. In fact, the way that he describes it here, he's saying, as they're attacking him, introducing this religion, he says, he says in verse 3, it's a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God. He's saying, look, what we've taught to you, it's, it's been written, it's a letter from Christ written by the spirit, and all, all that we are, we're just the deliverers of that message. We're just the ones that presented it to you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's even for us in this world, when people, when people disagree with maybe your stand in Jesus, it's not about arguing for you and defending you. It's about coming to what Jesus has said and saying, what does Christ say in, in this text about who he is? And, and, and acknowledging what, what scripture says about Jesus. And so Paul's completely in, in, the, in the middle of this, this problem that they're presenting as they're attacking Paul and introducing this religion. And Paul is saying, look, it's, it's not an issue about me because I'm not the answer. It's about Jesus, which is what makes the aroma so important. Which then Paul here, he gives us the resolution. And this resolution for a moment is going to look very important to the first century, but I, I want you to know this has a, a, a tremendous amount of application for our lives today. This is uh, brilliant where Paul goes on this passage of Scripture, but, but your, your, your resolution here, the blank in your notes is this. The resolution is Christ alone. Resolution is Christ alone. He says, he says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have in Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from him, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers for a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul, at the end of this verse, verse six, the very end, he's saying, look, when you try to merit your life and what you boast in, what it produces is death. Religion produces death. That's what Paul says. The letter of the law kills you. The Old Testament, the 613 commandments, it wasn't intended for you to obey that in order, in order that you can find life. You can't find life in the 613 commandments. What you find in the 613 commandments is condemnation because as you try to live that out in your life, you realize that you can never achieve it. That's why some of the most miserable people in this world are religious people because you find them all of these laws that they're trying to achieve in this world and they can't attain to it and all they hear over and over, you're worthless, you're a failure, you can't make it. And push down and down and down, and joy is gone. Now, it's not, to, it's not to say that the religious law isn't important in the Old Testament. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes the argument to the significance of what it represents because within it we see the holiness of God. You see the, the beauty of who God is in, in it. It says in verse 21 that is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have been indeed by the law. Meaning, if religion was the answer, then we would have kept it as the answer, right? But then he says this, uh, but the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin. That's what the law did. 
It imprisoned you. It trapped you. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or under the law. The argument is this, and Paul makes the same argument in Romans 3, saying, is the law bad then if it condemns us? No, it's certainly not bad. It's, it's not bad because it reveals the holiness of God. And in really revealing the holiness of God, it helps us recognize that we can't live up to that standard. And ultimately, we look for a rescue. And that, that guardian, that law worked to keep pointing us to that rescuer until ultimately that rescuer came. And who is that rescuer? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Something entirely new for your life. Then he refers to it in, in, in this passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He's saying, you have now this new covenant, this new way, this new place, this new identity. It's not religious living. It's Jesus living. It's walking in his spirit. It's separating yourself from this law because it's no longer a guardian over you, but now stepping into to Christ. That aroma of Jesus. And so it's on that backdrop that Paul says this, and this is where now you can attach all the way back to chapter two, but he says this, such is the confidence. If you want to know where do we have confidence, it's that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. Remember the question he asked at the very end of, uh, of verse 16? Who's sufficient for these things? We think about the aroma and the fragrance that we have in Christ and in being able to represent Christ in this world. Who, who in the world could, could even think that, that we deserve a position to represent God? It seems arrogant. Why would I even begin to think that I could do such a thing as this pleasing aroma of Jesus to this world? How, who is sufficient to even do that? And now he makes this argument. Where does this confidence come from? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us. But our sufficiency, it's from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I love it how Paul says it. We have confidence. We have confidence. This word confidence means really with faith. Con with, fidence, faith. Fide, it's faith. We're with faith. This is, this is what gives us the strength to endure and the ability to live Christ in this world. This is, this is where we get this confidence. It's not in ourselves. And, uh, this is so important because when you, when you think about uh, the challenges that we experience in, in this world, I, I find that people in, this, in, in life today, they're looking for a place to find an identity and a confidence and a purpose and a, and a meaning. And, and Paul is saying for us, this is where it comes from. This, it's not that we are sufficient in ourselves, he says in verse 5. 
He's helping his culture in this day. He's seeing where it's bankrupt in its religious systems. And he's saying that is not, that is not where you find confidence. That is, that is where you find death. We find our sufficiency not, not in ourselves. In Paul's day, you see now in these verses what they were peddling, right? In verse 17, he's saying, look, the, the motives, you need to look at the motives. There's, there's motives behind what people are doing, what they're trying to peddle to you. We're sincere in what we're about. It's the sufficiency in Jesus. That's what we need to find ourselves, but they have something else. They're, they're peddling, and, and what they're peddling is this re- religious law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, and you know, I think in our culture today, we try to find relevancy to what Paul's saying here as it relates to us. Like, it's a little bit of a leap between the Ten Commandments that Paul's talking about here and writing on stone versus what we experience today. Because I think in our culture, you know, people could probably say the word Ten Commandments and have a general idea of what we're talking about in that regard. But if you ask them to name them, um, I, I doubt very many people can name past two in our culture today. So when we think about, okay, so, so when Paul's talking, talking about re- living religiously here, how does this connect to us? And I, I would say in, in our world today, look, the, the world still promotes a system of religion. It's just not listed under the Ten Commandments like, we're, like they would be used to in Paul's today. The, the world around us still promotes a, a way of finding a, a religious system to, to discover yourself. It's the same trick from Paul's day. It's just morphed in different identities. When we talk in, in terms of religion, what we mean is any system of rules that people use to, to look in you to find a new identity and answers towards value and meaning for your life. Any system this world gives to you that, that, that says to you, look, here's, here's another way of living your life, a, a, a new standard of rules that you can go by in order to reinvent yourself, to have this new identity which will give you worth and value and meaning. If you would just, if you would just align with this, then you'll, you'll find the holistic purpose for which you were created. Over and over, our culture has, has done it, just like Paul's saying in the first century. People have come into Corinth. They're saying, don't listen to the Apostle Paul. Here's a, a new system. And if you follow this system, it'll, it'll give you a, a new identity and a new worth. And you can put your, your confidence here. And Paul's saying, there, there is no sufficiency in this. Your soul isn't found free in laws of living. Rather, it destroys you. And the gospel is something entirely different than that. In our culture today, people, I think, are hungry to feel important, to know they matter, to discover some sort of identity that makes them feel this way. And they will step into anything the world presents just to fill that wholeness. And Paul is saying, in church, as people try to discover that in, in anything your culture tries to present, whether it's in wokeness or some sort of sexual orientation and identity, you have something so sacred in the gospel to present. 
an entirely different alternative for another identity altogether that's not the system of trying to prove your worth. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, and here's the beauty of Jesus. While these religious systems of of performance are presented to people, and they've got to strive within those, the, that struggle to try to, to, try to demonstrate to, to their social group or whatever they're in that they might be worth loving. That there is Jesus who has come to completely deliver them from all of this. And it's not the system of rules. It's Jesus who has come and Jesus who has, who has died under the law that you could be set free. It's a laying down of you entirely and embracing Christ in this this new identity and everything that Jesus has done for you. It's no longer having to wage a war in the, the worldly systems of life around you to prove anything. Because of everything Christ has proven on your behalf. Paul's saying, let go of it all. Die to all of it. And find an entirely new identity in Jesus. Let him shape you. Let him renew you. Don't take a detour into the things of this world. It'll only trap you in this other system. And you're going to get to the end and you're going to labor and you're going to recognize that within your soul you still feel broken. Don't you remember the aroma of Christ? He's come to deliver you and to set you free and to lead you in this triumphal procession. That's what he says in verse 14, that you can can live out your new identity completely other and different than anything this world has to offer in Jesus because of everything that Jesus has done for you. Where does our confidence come from? That sufficiency is not in ourselves. But our sufficient place is found in Christ to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of some law that the world presents, but in the spirit who gives life. It's resting in the goodness of Jesus. For Corinth, the temptation came to them to let go of that. Guys, for us in in Jesus, that is the temptation that we face every day. Things of this world to distract us from something completely other and different in Jesus, where every day we have the opportunity to lay ourselves down and, and let Christ lead our lives as we find ourselves made whole in him and our worth and our value and our meaning completely secure in Jesus. Let me end with this illustration. In, in Greece, there was um, one of the favored events in their Olympic Games. It was a, a relay race for the running of the torch. In fact, in, in the, the original Olympic Games, there were multiple races that involved torches. It's where we mimic much of our torch things that we do today. Um, when we have the runs before the Olympic game, the runs, we run before the Olympic game and, and we light the, the big cauldron at the end. I totally butchered that. Didn't I? Um, don't, don't get the runs, but if you run. Um, but when you think in terms of, 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 of the Greco-Roman games, when they would run with these torches, the, the goal was they, they would run a race and it wasn't about who finished first. 
but it was rather about who crossed the finish line first with their torch still lit. And they would run, run this race and they would do this relay race with, the, with their torches. And whoever crossed the finish line first with that torch lit, um, there was celebration and then they would take that torch and they would light the spectators' torches and illuminate the beauty of the games. And when I think about that story, there's a, a beautiful connection to the life of, of a Christian. Man, what Jesus wants to see with you is that, that fire that he lit within you to continue to run that race and to cross that finish line and that your light would just continue to illuminate the next generation for his kingdom and his glory in this world. And for us, it's to rest in this message, to remind ourselves of the aroma of Jesus, to not be tempted in the things of this world as if they have something to offer because we recognize it's just another religious system written another way that always results in bankruptcy. But in Christ, in Christ I am forever secure. And I am, I am of worth, not because of me proving anything, but because of what Jesus has proven on my behalf. And every day, regardless of the message presented to me from the things of this world, I choose Jesus, that other people may find their freedom in him too. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.